Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is all theater. It's all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Day. The last time we spoke with our friend and former colleague Amanda Becker, she was about to start her Neiman Fellowship up at Harvard University in Massachusetts. It has been almost a year since then, and what a year it has been. We thought it would be a good time to catch up with her. Her fellowship is over. Uh, she is continuing some of the work that she was doing on that fellowship uh, and beyond. And it relates also to a big anniversary that's coming up, which is the anniversary of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade. It'll all come together, I promise. But in the meantime, Amanda Becker, welcome back to Political Theater. Thank you for having me back, Jason. So one, your, your Neiman Fellowship is, is over. Again, this is a, uh, you know, um, among the most prestigious journalism fellowships uh, in, on the planet. Uh, you, what, what are just some quick reflections of, of now that you've concluded that fellowship? Oh, so many. Um, first of all, if you're a journalist, definitely try and get one. It's a, it will be a nine-month highlight of your career, in large part because you're not expected to produce any journalism. Um, which I know seems counterintuitive, but really the only requirements of the program are that you actually are contractually prohibited from doing paid professional work um, for the duration of the program. You can get like dispensations sometimes for something here or there. Um, and that you have to audit one class and that you each semester and that you um, produce a presentation for your other fellows um, about why you do what you do. So there's really no deliverable. It's kind of like a nine month um, sabbatical, but I just coming away from it, I think it actually would not be um, too much to say that I think it actually uh, changed the way I think about things. Um, Just having that time and space and having kind of like a time of um, cognitively divergent thinking where you didn't have to focus on any one thing and could go explore and take other classes, um, it really helps you start to see connections between various things. And, you know, I'm spending this summer writing a book about abortion. So I'm kind of like my brain right now kind of feels like um, I'm applying like the, the Big Bang Theory to it. Like I had this year where it was like expanding and expanding and expanding after an explosion. And now um It's like coming back in and boring down. But I don't think I would be able to do that in the same way if I hadn't had the time to have that kind of uh, divergent thinking. And and again, we you know we worked together at Roll Call. Then you went to Reuters, and and then to your current position at the Nineteenth, where you cover politics. And you were just on this, like a lot of journalists, you were on this like constant deadline situation for you know more than ten years. And to have that kind of 
time available to develop your thinking, to rethink like how you do things and why you're doing it and, and what topics uh, are, are what you want to spend, you know, sort of the narrative threads of your, of your life and your career. I mean, it really is pretty, pretty invaluable. Um, you now, I, I also understand just that you're, uh, you're, you're staying put for a little bit in Cambridge or actually, I mean, I think you're in the S- Somerville, if I, Somerville, if I right. the glorious town of Somerville, which was, uh, delightful. My, my wife, Fawn and I, we visited you, uh, last, last November. And, uh, among sort of the highlights of that was just randomly, uh, Nobel prize laureate Maria Ressa just stopped by just to say hello to the Neemans, but you're, you're sticking around for a little bit to teach. I am. I'm here for, um, it's really, I'm only here for another month now, which is kind of wild. Um, a month and a couple days. Uh, I'll be leaving at the end of July. That's, you know, I had to sign a year lease. So I'm just staying until basically the end of the lease. Um, I'm teaching a class, a news reporting and writing class. It's my first time um, like fully teaching a class. I've, I've um, taught like one-offs before, um, but we had our first class last night. Um, so I'm excited to kind of move into that space as well and try and try something a little bit new this summer. They're going to try to make you an editor, Becker. <laughs> you know, I, this year actually is the first time I've ever considered it. Uh-huh. But now I think I'm back to never wanting to be an editor. So it really depends on the day. Uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how you feel at the end of the, the time teaching. Because, I mean, as you know about my, my past, um, I didn't have the traditional trajectory, you know, into journalism. I was a teacher. I I taught at the university level as a TA. Uh, I mean, I had my own classes, but I was a graduate assistant teaching English. And then I taught uh, high school uh, on the NAFO reservation. And then I taught another year of college in West Virginia. And I think that those circumstances really helped shape the kind of editor I became. Um, I mean, I did have a lot of writing experience, but not as much reporting experience. But I like to think that the teaching is very complementary to being an editor. I mean, and maybe that will give me my editor fix, though, because here's the thing. It's not it's not that I don't want to be an editor because I don't like working with people's copy. I actually love working with people's copy. Um, I, in particular, rediscovered this year. I, I knew this, that I actually really love working with the copy of non-native English speakers um, because they come up with like some untraditional structures um, that aren't wrong. It's not incorrect. It's just not how in, you know, someone whose primary language is English would have written it. Um, So I do love editing. Um, I actually love helping people uh, deliver their stories and deliver their journalism in the best way. What I don't like is the HR aspect that goes along with editing in a newsroom. And I hate meetings. And so I just, it's hard to reconcile actually enjoying the act of editing with uh, the other part of the job that comes along with it. I, mean. I, I will admit that some of the meetings, I mean, I try my best, you know, in my position uh, at Roll Call to make them like this, but I, I was pretty sure that the editorial meetings were going to be like the ones in like all the president's men, you know, or, or the paper, you know, where people are kind of like, you know, have their feet up on the desk and they're kind of waxing about like, well, yeah, you know, <laughs> and it, didn't turn out that way. Although I've tried, um, I, I, I try to put my feet up on the desk as, as much as I possibly can, but it doesn't really make that much sense if I'm the only person in the room since we're, you know, there's so much remote work still. I mean, yeah, like meetings now are on zoom. So it, it completely removes any joyful aspect. 
Although you could, if you wanted to, you could recreate the smoking uh, part of it since like you can't smoke in a public building uh, or in a newsroom, but you could smoke just by yourself, you know, in, in a Zoom meeting without like, you know, infecting other people as they can't smoke. So <laughs> I've still never smoked a single cigarette in my entire life. So I don't think I'm going to start now. It's never too late to start. Uh, <laughs> you can always, uh, you can always develop new habits. Um so back to your, you know, sort of reflections and also what you've been doing. I mean, quite a bit of the sort of time that you've been thinking about, like how to approach stories is also through the lens of this book that you're writing. Uh, and this ties into the anniversary of Dobbs uh, the, on, on Saturday. So let's talk about your book. Yeah, so I'm kind of really getting in the thick of the writing um, this month. Um, I had written several chapters over the winter, um, but you know, the fellowship, the fellowship is not a book writing fellowship. You're not supposed to be writing a book on the fellowship. Um, you're supposed to be focusing on the fellowship. So I did. Um, I wrote a couple chapters over our winter break because we had a nice six weeks off. Um, but then I, you know, I was doing reporting along the way, some weekends, especially when I would go out of town, but I wasn't doing any writing um, for the past four or five months. Um, so I really got into the thick of kind of writing a couple weeks ago. I decided just to start with chapter one um, because I know it's going to be one of the um, the most important chapters, because if you don't like chapter one of a book, you're not going to keep reading. And so I'm putting a lot of mental pressure on myself for that chapter. It's also, I've realized that the earlier chapters in a book are some of the most technically difficult in a nonfiction book, because you're having to set everything up. And it's not like in a later chapter where people already have some contextual knowledge. So, you know, my chapter opens at a clinic in the South, but to explain what happened there that day that Dobbs came down, I have to go into the history. And one thing, you know, we've seen a lot more coverage of reproductive health over the past year, obviously, you know, newsrooms are finally treating it as an important beat, which they should have been long before this, because it's just, and I'm finding it's impossible to divorce, in the, like in the chapter I was just writing, uh, what's happening now with abortion, from racial justice, from affirmative action, from the tr anti-trans legislation. It's all grounded in the legal framework, the same legal, legal frame, framework of who does, who does the 14th Amendment apply to, essentially? Does it, does it apply to people of color? Does it apply to uh, people who can give birth? Does it, or does it apply to the fetus? Because like, you actually have like a human struggle right there where the pro-life movement or the anti-abortion movement is trying to say that you know, that's a person that needs to be protected by the 14th Amendment. But then by doing so, the person pregnant is not. So it's just been a really interesting, um, it's been really interesting just to think through how you structure you know, 30 years of history to, to explain how we got to a moment in a very brief way. And it's something that you don't get to do in your day-to-day -day journalism. I mean, even in stories about abortion politics, every story can't be 5,000 words. So how how do you go in and make those connections? And so that's, I think, going to be the really gratifying thing about doing it in book form. And just broadly, the structure of your book, I mean, you, you've got a few spots in the country that you've you've you're you're going to and you're checking back in with them you know it's it's in and I'm, I'm guessing it will be episodic that you will can you'll keep going back to at certain time frames that as you get further away from Dobbs uh and because it's like it's not just a one year out you know book it, it is a post row or post Dobbs that's an interesting question is it it is obviously the post row world but it is the post Dobbs world yeah. too or the Dobbs world 
So you're doing quite a bit of traveling on the ground for this book also, because you want to make sure that you hit a, a variety of places uh, and, to, and to see the sort of wide range of effects that are, that are happening. Yeah, because right now in this country, I mean, I, I told you the last time we met last year for this podcast um, that I the reason I ended up a political reporter is because I like uh, finding out what affects people and, you know, how they're experiencing the policies that are enacted in Washington and in state legislatures. And right now, you honestly have a completely different you live in a different world if you live in Alabama um, versus Massachusetts you live in a completely different world if you live in Arizona versus Maryland. And we're supposed to be one country. And yet, you know, right now, more than half the country, and I would say this actually affects everyone in the country, is living in a very different world, depending on just, you know, borders that have been drawn around them. And, you know, even within those borders, you know, there's there's other borders that have been artificially drawn and in, in, in gerrymandered. So, you know, we are living in a time, I was telling someone yesterday, I actually think we could be living through a period of major political realignment right now. Um, and obviously that's not something you know until after. There's like a convergence of a lot of things happening right now. And one of my early chapters is explaining about how abortion actually reordered our politics in the early 1980s. And like, I think we're at another point where again, um, abortion could be one of the driving issues that reorganizes the electorate. I, I mean, I would agree. You know that that we, again, it'll hindsight will will uh, you know will help this. You know, a, f- a few years from now or maybe a decade from now, but it does feel like we are in the middle of of a big shift, and and we see this. Uh, you know, obviously, as as you've outlined with with abortion. But we're also seeing it, you know, in sort of the shift in in how, according to class and education levels, I mean, th- those are starting to to sort of shift. I mean, it, it's it's an absolutely phenomenal and sometimes exhausting time to be a political journalist or a political scientist because more than any other time in my life, it seems that we don't exactly know where we're headed. <laughs> no, and like I. I- Depending on which side is ascendant, you know, which party or not even party, but really what what ideology is victorious, I think we don't we can't know the outcome because there's dramatically different outcomes. And I, I think we're in a period of political realignment that I know. I just don't know how it's going to realign. We won't know that for a while. And of course, it's complicated by some other factors such as, you know, sometimes the person who gets the most votes in a presidential election doesn't win, which sounds silly when you think about it until you remind yourself how the electoral college works. You know, in in several states, you know, we have particularly house, you know, districts drawn so torturously that even even this Supreme Court, which is very conservative, particularly with the Voting Rights Act, uh, you know, is, is asked Alabama to redraw their maps because it, it, it's just you can't fit all of the black people into one district in Alabama. <laughs> they, they, they've seen, you know, even even this Supreme Court, which, you know, has has been relatively hostile to any kind of challenges to the Voting Rights Act or, or under the Voting Rights Act for gerrymandering, said like in Alabama, yeah, this is, doesn't work, guys. Uh, in <laughs> Alabama, let's remember, it was a county in Alabama that brought the case to the Supreme Court that eviscerated the vote, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. Um, they successfully made the case that 
No, it's so unfair. Slavery was a long time ago. We are not discriminating against our voters of color when we're drawing these boundaries. And we shouldn't have to ask the Justice Department. And then, lo and behold, here we are a few years later, and their map just got tossed out because they did that exact thing. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about timing with the book, because I know, I mean, you're, you've, got, you've got a couple of things in flux, as you said, your, your lease is up uh, in, in Massachusetts, uh, in, in your current apartment. Uh, you've got a class ending, and, and you've got, uh, eventually, you've got to turn in a manuscript, apparently. I mean, the, the, the deadline looms, uh, Amanda. So what's, uh, what's the time frame for the rest of your reporting and, and finishing up the book? And when can people start uh, putting in their, their pre-orders for it? I have no idea about pre-orders, but I do know, I have learned that those are very important. So um, you will be hearing from me when I have that information. Um, my manuscript is due in September, um, so soon. And every time I tell someone else that who's written a book or who is writing a book, they're usually like, ooh, are you going to be able to meet that? And like <laughs> right now, I'm a little bit behind where I wanted to be in terms of word count. But again, that's also because I've started with some of the more complicated sections. So I anticipate that hopefully other chapters will go a lot more quickly. Um, in terms of reporting, I am coming to DC this weekend for the anniversary of the Dobbs decision. Um, Anti-abortion groups are meeting at the Lincoln Memorial, so I'm going to go to that. Um, and then um, I have another trip, probably one more to Alabama and probably one more to Arizona. But the narrative of my book, um, for the most part, ends on Saturday. It ends on the year anniversary. This is a um, one-year snapshot, um, chronologically, of what it was like to live in this country as uh, Roe fell. And we figured out um, what the you know, what was going to happen next and what people could do. So um, the bulk of like the what I would call the character reporting is done. Um, I'm honestly waiting to do a lot of the expert interviews until I've written most of the book, because these are people who I've talked to dozens of times in the past for various news stories. So I kind of already have an idea of what they're going to say. Um, so I'm putting placeholders because I want to be able to have people weigh in across a variety of topics. And I don't want to um, annoy them by asking them to do six different interviews as I'm writing six different chapters. So Probably I'll be finishing up that sort of reporting into August and uh, hopefully get this manuscript in on time. And then I think that means it would end up coming out mid-2024, so May or June. It's a long way to wait for this. but I know. You know but well, hopefully we'll, you know. I want it out by the second <laughs> anniversary of the Dobbs decision. So fingers crossed we make that happen. Fingers crossed, but I mean, I just I didn't want to get uh, our our listeners excited for this, and then the, then they yeah, you know, you'll be waiting a while. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Amanda, thank you again for um, you know for coming on the show. I, I was I was curious, you know how how it all, especially when we talked talked in August, it just seemed like such a um, you know kind of wide open time, you know for for you, you know, cause I knew that you were, you know, you were, were beginning this book, but also just, this is, this Neiman was, you know, very interesting and kind of cool thing to do. And, um, glad you got to do it. Glad you're reflecting on it. Glad you've got deadlines to hit again. Uh, it's, it's, it's great having you back in the fold. I mean, I know it's not a daily deadline, but it kind of is because you, you kind of have I mean, to I'm hit I'm writing more deadline. words a day right now than I ever wrote in a newsroom. So, um, <laughs> and like, torturously in, in some instances, like I'll spend two hours on one paragraph um, trying to get it exactly right. So it's just, a, it's just a different all without the benefit of, of somebody calling you and saying, how are we looking? 
Yeah. <laughs> right. Or just like hovering physically. How, how, how are we doing? Uh, how, how's this going? Um. <laughs> or starting to like open the Google, the shared Google doc, like, and like starting to edit your top while you're still finishing the bottom. That's another favorite of mine. Uh well, Amanda, good luck with the rest of the book. Uh, good luck with teaching the class uh, and and what comes of that. And uh, we will see you again another time on Political Theater. Thanks so much, Jason. Jason.